All of this stuff, I think, has created so much tension and insecurity around the world and confusion among our allies and adversaries. Uh, you know, the yo-yoing of Washington's position. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Julia Yaffe covers U.S. politics and national security for The Atlantic. When it comes to foreign policy decisions, Yaffe thinks President Trump's learning curve is steep and the messages coming from Washington are inconsistent. She fears these factors may contribute to instability around the globe. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other programs presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Trump administration has said it's committed to a foreign policy focused on American interests and American national security. Critics have said Trump is isolating the U.S. by withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, waffling on a commitment to NATO, and abandoning the TPP. But just last week, the president deepened American involvement abroad by announcing the U.S. would deploy more troops to Afghanistan. It's a conflict he once called feudal, reports the New York Times. So what is the Trump doctrine on foreign policy? How will this administration wield power internationally? Will it amount to America first or America alone? The Atlantic's Julia Yaffe is joined by former CIA director David Petraeus and Duke political science professor Peter Fever. Moderator David Rothkopf is an author, New York Times contributor, and visiting professor at Columbia. The four spoke on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June, before Trump announced his plans in Afghanistan. Here's David Rothkopf. We're going to dive right in, and I think what we need to do is we need to frame the discussion by saying what's different. What's different in the foreign policy and the approach to national security of the Trump administration from that which we're used to? And, and, and you can answer this in one of two ways. Either what's different between the Trump administration and the immediately preceding administrations, the Obama administration or the Bush administration, or you can answer it in terms, if you think there are terms, what's different in the Trump administration approach that's different from anything we've done in recent memory. Dave, let me start with you. Well, first of all, thanks as always uh, for the opportunity to the Aspen Institute, to Atlantic Media. Uh, these are always stimulating. It's terrific to be on the same stage uh, with you, David, and Peter, and, and Julia, uh, and a wonderful topic. Um, I would, if I was going to put the bottom line up front, which is what military guys are supposed to do, uh, I would say, and this may be counter to what many think. I think there's more continuity to this foreign policy than there actually is change, with three exceptions, uh, and those are climate, clearly different. Uh, trade, we're still not sure, but actually seems to be reverting to the mean other than having gotten rid of TPP, which the other candidate would have done as well uh, for domestic political reasons. And then immigration, we're still seeing how that will sort out. And then I guess just the general rhetorical ambivalence to continue to lead the rules-based liberal international order, which I think most in here, certainly all of us, I think, uh, believe has served the world really quite well since the end of a 50-year period that had two world wars and the greatest depression uh, in world history. 
Uh, let me back up now a little bit and, and sort of lay this out. First of all, I think that the national security team is of, an, of enormous quality. H.R. Uh, McMaster, his deputy, not as well known, Ricky Waddell, West Point Rhodes Scholar, uh, PhD from Columbia University, uh, reserve major general, but also a very successful businessman. Both of them, many tours together on battlefields. The same with uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, who I think is off to a very impressive start. Um, if you look at the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if you look at the battlefield commanders in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of these have enormous experience. And I would characterize them as the kind, and you know, a lot of people will say there's a lot of generals. I think we're going to talk civil military relations tomorrow. And I will make the point then that these are generals who do not see every problem as a nail, and they don't see the solution, therefore, as a bigger hammer. Uh, they see solutions oftentimes being not military at all, at the very least a stiletto, uh, precision, or what have you. And so again, I think a very good team. Rex Tillerson, bit of an engineer, certainly takes problems apart, puts them back together, takes his time, clearly is not someone um, where you're in risk if you are between him and a, and a podium or the press. Um, but I think, again, uh, and needs a lot of help in that department and filling it certainly has taken uh, too long. But Ned Ambassador Nikki Haley, who I think has just been spectacular and is not someone I think that folks would have predicted right out of, out of the uh, chute would have been as impressive as she is. Uh, I think she's really top notch. And then if you look at, okay, let's look at, again, follow the money and follow the troops, follow the decisions. Uh, don't necessarily always follow the tweets. You do need to listen to them. You need to read them. Um, but, but again, it's about what is actually happening. This is a president who, when Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons on his people, did not temporize. Within 36 hours, there were 50 or so cruise missiles that, that hit. It was measured. It was, it was deliberate, pointed, and so forth. Uh, and when it was threatened this time, I think Bashar al-Assad took note of that. It's hard to say whether it absolutely deterred something that was in the works or not, uh, but that's how you build American credibility. Building, I think, effectively on the uh, work that was done in the previous administration in the fight against the Islamic State, prosecuting that well. Less known is the different interagency groups that are working on between state and defense, uh, that are working on how to take this forward in the battle after the battle. We've never doubted that they would defeat the Islamic State with our enabling. Uh, the question was always, what happens after? Can you get inclusive governance or not? And there's a lot of effort on, ongoing there as well. Um, so again, you just take issue after issue. There's a devolution of responsibility that I applaud. Uh, again, in part because I have such confidence in the national security team. There is not micromanagement of troop numbers, yet the troop numbers aren't ballooning. Um, and so I think it's actually going forward in a very measured manner. And again, much more continuity than change. You know, you had lots of disruption. You had a phone call from the Taiwanese president, but ultimately, the president adopts the one China policy, embraces it, and Vice President Xi has a relationship, and now there's four working groups established that are moving forward so they can address the core issue of North Korea and the other challenges. Uh, certainly missed an opportunity at NATO headquarters when the 9-11 memorials unveiled, reminding us that that's the only time Article 5 was ever invoked was after 9-11, and we did not step up at that moment and, and guarantee the Article 5 collective self-defense, but ultimately have done that have reassured our alliance partners in the Far East. So again, 
I think a good bit more continuity than might be expected if you just, again, read tweets or uh, different statements to the press. Okay, so we're going to come back and talk about what, a little bit of what's working and a little bit of what's not. That's probably the most robust defense of Trump foreign policy that I've ever heard. By the way, I am not. Um, I, so, am, I, so, <laughs> I am non-political. I would remind you, I don't vote. I have served both administrations and no. senatorial appointed positions, and I'm not out to. I don't need another job. Uh, I was. I was. You can never be a partner in KKR. You never want to do anything else in your life. And 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 we'll all hand you our resumes as soon as we're done. Um, uh, as far as that goes, but. Um, it was a pretty robust view. Peter, what's your view? You served in the Bush administration, which, by the way, I think... Another great national security well, and, But I think it's not fully appreciated that by the end of the second term of the Bush administration, it had a pretty high-functioning national security team, and it was actually working pretty well. Um, and well. Some, some really high-quality people. So as you look at this, what do you see? Well, thank you. It's also, uh, I want to echo what uh, General Petraeus said. It's an honor to be on the stage here. And and anytime I'm next to a former boss, I feel like I have to get you coffee or whatever. If, I want to make sure you're taken care of, boss. Thank, but, thank you. Um, I, I love that. By the way, that has never happened before. So. <laughs> but in terms of what's different, I think on policy, I see a big difference on Russia. But I'm going to let Julia weigh in on that because she knows that better than I do. In terms of process, I think there's three big differences that I would flag. First and most important, the president's role in the making of foreign policy is different in this administration than in previous administrations that I've watched closely. I think, the, I think President Trump is absolutely the decider on an issue that reaches his desk uh, and, and is sometimes difficult to, his staff has a challenge figuring out where, his, where he's gonna come down on some of those issues. So he's hard, from a staff point of view, hard to anticipate. And that's a challenge if you're a junior staffer working for president who you're not quite sure where he's gonna come down. But I think there's a lot of policy that has been delegated down below the president's level to the team that um, uh, General Petraeus mentioned. And that's different because uh, the last president we saw, President Obama, drew all of that in. Uh, and if there's a critique of the Obama administration was that they couldn't make decisions because he brought them all up, even tactical decisions, to the president's level and then um, wrestled with them. And so that, that's, a, that's a big change. The second is the influence of the military on national security policy is different. And this is a plug for our lunch conversation. General Petraeus and I tomorrow will be diving into this issue more. And I agree that the, the worst uh, alarmist treatments of that are wrong that it's not, it's, it's not the military running amok and seeing the world like a three-year-old with a hammer. That's certainly not the case. But it is the case that uh, the, we're missing the strong voice of civilians, uh, whether it's the f civilian foreign service officers, which is a, a great national resource that we have, uh, but they're not yet empowered. I think state has been a little bit slow in standing up. Uh, but also the civilian OSD, uh, which is a crucial uh, has a crucial role in civil-military relations at the policy-making level, I don't think has stepped up yet, precisely because uh, Secretary Mattis has had trouble um, uh, staffing the, the lower ranks. They're slowly getting on board, and, and there's some very good people that have 
come on board. So I, I'm optimistic that in six months from now, or if I get invited back next year, I'll talk about how they finally got that team assembled. And then the third change I'd, the difference is there's no Ben Rhodes. Uh, so Ben Rhodes was the strategic communications uh, czar uh, in the Obama White House, and he was uh, very, very effective at controlling the message and getting pretty much everybody singing on the same uh, song sheet uh, in the Obama administration. Now, when the song sheet was wrongly, you know, was out of tune as it was on Benghazi, then they went off uh, into a ditch. Uh, but when they were on tune, there was remarkable consistency across, certainly across the White House, but also uh, lower-ranking players. And this administration does not have that kind of message discipline, in part because the president tweets and sometimes tweets messages that seem to be at odds with where the policy is going. And so you have, it, it feels more disorienting, I think, those of us who are on the outside, be, precisely because we're seeing this message um, disconnect. That's so those would be my three. why you want to follow the troops and follow the money right. and not get distracted by the sometimes discordant. And there is, to be sure, a tug of war, I think, that is actually going on. It's between the MMT, McMaster's, Madison, Tillerson, to some degree, and then uh, some that are in the White House. Yeah. Okay. Julia, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm a little disoriented so far <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> So I'm like, wait a minute, I thought, right. I thought I lived in Washington and knew what was going on. Apparently not. Anyway, go on. So there's, I mean, there's so many, you know, let me count the ways that this is, this administration's foreign policy is different. Uh, first of all, the hollowing out of the State Department, uh, you know, for example, the Russians are complaining that they have Tillerson to talk to, they might have people in the White House to talk to, but then there's nobody else. There's nothing, you know, like the half of the Velcro is missing. There's and no, when the Russians complain, we take that very seriously. <laughs> in this administration, which is difference number two. Uh, difference number three is the amount of, the unbelievable amount of financial involvements of this president and his family in sensitive uh, sensitive areas around the world, and we have yet to see how that has has affected and will affect our foreign policy and national security, and that is a big and troubling difference. A fourth difference is again that you know once the when you say the State Department is hollowed out, who you know met, you know in the conservation of political power, where does that go? It goes to the the military, the uh, the generals, which. Uh, President Trump was obsessed with as a candidate. You know, he was obsessed with collecting the endorsements of people with epaulets and stars and medals on their chests. Uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But Thank it, you, David. When it's such a, when it's, it, it just seems very lopsided. And um, the fifth difference is there are excellent people in this administration, Nikki Haley being one of them, uh, McMaster, um, Mattis, but these people are so often undercut by the commander-in-chief that, you know, Nikki Haley's been great, but what does she matter in an administration that's constantly, has the polar opposite position from her? Um, so she goes out, out on and says something on TV or at a, a, you know, at a hearing in the United Nations, and the message coming out of the White House is totally different. 
And all of this stuff, I think, has created so much tension and insecurity around the world and confusion among our allies and adversaries. Uh, you know, the, this, the yo-yoing uh, of Washington's position because even though every president learns in the first few months in office and it's a very steep learning curve, this president was starting at such a low, uh, low level that the learning curve looks more like an asymptote. And, uh, and he, you know, you just, you, you're, we're watching his learning process unfold in real time and it's often really alarming. You know, like when he discovers that Syria is actually a very complicated problem. Just like, uh, just like healthcare is actually a very complicated problem. But, you know, it, it's just this constant, you don't know when you wake up in the morning or when the whole world wakes up in, in their mornings, what is going to happen, what's going to come out of Washington. And if they can believe any of these people, you know, the last Munich Security Council, everybody was waiting for Mattis to speak and Vice, Presidents, uh, Vi Vice President Pence to speak. And... But then it, they'd be undercut by the president. And they had, you know, he takes away their credibility. Nobody knows what to believe and to think about where we stand and what our position is. And that can lead very quickly to some very troubling things. It creates, a, it's a lot of volatility, in other words. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, National Security in the Age of America First, featuring David Petraeus, Peter Fever, Julia Yaffe, and David Rothkopf. Their conversation was held in June 2017 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Look for additional discussions from the festival on our website. You'll find talks on morality, climate change, artificial intelligence, and more. Go to aspenideas.org and click on Watch and Listen. Now, back to the show. Here's David Rothkopf. So let me take 30 seconds or 60 seconds of moderator's prerogative here and just add to this perspective. I, I think there are a lot of areas that we haven't touched upon where we could say this is very different. We've never had a president with this little national security or foreign policy experience. We've never had a president with this little government experience. We've never taken so long to fill the senior jobs in government. We've never had a president who's had such an alienated relationship with the intelligence community from the very beginning. The national security process doesn't actually function. There have been very few principles meetings of the national security process. Uh, lots been, lots uh, of principles meetings, pardon? very few NSC meetings. NSC meetings, and we have lost and no one deputies. national security advisor very early on, yep. historically fast. Um, we have alienated our allies in a way that we've never done before, rapidly, and allies that you didn't think you could alienate. I know a lot of Australians. It's tough to alienate an Australian. We've alienated Australia. I, I'm not sure I buy that, actually. Okay. I was just there last week, and, and I met with the Prime Minister and, and the Foreign Minister. And he ticked off with a lot of Australians. And, and, and you alienated some Australians. <laughs> you know, look, okay. there, well, is, uh, there is uncertainty. Don't get me wrong. I think what, what you all well, have but, said. Well, but just, just, but just, there's a degree, you know, they just met with Madison Tillerson. Uh, well, they were feeling pretty good. Well, let me carry that now, step, a step great, forward. Probably, I mean, first, perhaps. I was going to say Australia, Mexico, Canada. You've had the Canadian Mexico, foreign yes. minister. You've had the Canadian foreign minister saying we can't depend on the U.S. anymore. You've had Merkel saying we can't depend on the United States anymore. This has never happened before and since the end of the Second World War. Um, and I could go on. And with regard to this last point here, as we're all stopped, but 
you know, Mattis and, and McMaster, uh, who are very distinguished men who are doing the very best they can, are playing the role of the guys in the circus parade with the brooms. And the president is moving along ahead of them, and they're following along. And there has never been, there has never been the kind of disconnect between the rhetoric of a president and the rhetoric of his own team as we've seen before. And we just had this meltdown from Tillerson, who's like the lost man, the forgotten man in this administration, because of another thing we've never had, which is the son-in-law of the president playing the role of secretary of everything. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's, it's different. But now having said that, and being trying to be a moderate moderator and ignore the applause, keep it coming, um, <laughs> let's focus on this. What's better about the Trump administration's approach than what we've seen recently? And I'll go back to you, Dave, to start. As I said, he, made it, he makes a decision. Um, the red line that was not a red line was a big blow to American credibility. Uh, the micromanagement of troop levels. Let me give you an example of what happened in Afghanistan because of this. Commander over there, who's spectacular, by the way, Mick Nicholson, four-star now, was my two-star ops commander during the surge in Afghanistan. Um, he needed an aviation brigade, so they send over the helicopters, and they said, but you know, I'm sorry, we have this troop cap, and so we can send the helicopters and the pilots, but we can't send all the maintenance crews. So they actually sit home. They're on a base that only had one aviation brigade, so they're sitting home twiddling their thumbs, losing their readiness skills. They came in the Army to fix helicopters, especially when they're at a high op tempo when you're flying in combat at triple the number of hours that you normally fly or quadruple. The unit readiness is broken down, the, 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 the sense of unity of purpose and everything else. And oh, by the way, you hire hugely expensive civilian contractors to actually turn wrenches out there, which by the way, then they, those firms recruit these maintenance people who we've trained and they're disgruntled because they didn't get to do it, so they go out and, and so that's that kind of, uh, I think, unthinking at times, um, that drawdowns that were too fast, and now we need to go back and, and police up some of that, and I think we will. I, I, don't get me wrong now, though, because I think that the previous administration, during the final year in particular, went a long way, particularly in the fights against the Islamic State and uh, other Islamist extremists, to getting to what I think is necessary, and that is a sustainable, and sustainability is measured in blood and treasure, the expenditure of each, a sustainable, sustained commitment. I believe that's what's required because I think we're engaged in a generational struggle. Uh, we'll, put a, we'll take away the geographic caliphate of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, and by the way, again, we've accelerated that because the president has pushed down decision-making the rules of engagement haven't changed. The decision point has, and that's good, because some of these are fleeting opportunities. Um, but at the end of the day, even after we put a stake through the heart of Baghdadi, which I think will happen at some point inevitably, uh, there will still be the virtual caliphate. There will still be these other elements that are metastasized around the world. Wherever there are ungoverned spaces or even inadequately governed spaces in the Islamic world, uh, extremists will exploit them. And we will have to have, again, something uh, to counter that. And we're generally gonna have to lead it, still should be a comprehensive effort. So we need to enable these 
And what we've gotten to in Iraq, in Syria, a bit in North Africa, Somalia, and so forth, uh, is that we are enabling others. They're doing the fighting on the front lines, which again makes this much more sustainable. Uh, and, uh, and I think we can continue to do that in Afghanistan as well. By the way, with respect to Afghanistan, let us not forget that we went there for a reason and we have stayed for a reason. And that is because that's where the 9-11 attacks were planned and where the initial training of the attackers was conducted. And we do not want to allow that to be a sanctuary for transnational extremists again. And we have succeeded in doing that, but not succeeded in, in so enabling the Afghans that they can do it on their own. It's important to us, so we keep on, on, on doing it. We have kept tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops in continent of Europe when we had important national interests. And I think we have to look at these with a longer range scope, but again, that means it's gotta be sustainable. And I think they've, they've built on this uh, in quite an effective manner as well. But again, I, yes, there's been all the fumbling and there's the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the lack of message discipline. In a lot of ways, I would prefer the policy, even with, not with the discordant, I'd rather have the policy with, with a common message, uh, over some of what we went through uh, before uh, with respect to Syria. Everything comes back to Syria, I think. Uh, time and time again, uh, again, not just the red line, but the early opportunities, the rhetoric that far outstripped our willingness to take action to make Bashar go, although that was our policy, uh, the rhetoric about humanitarian uh, issues and so forth, and we really did not uh, do much there. So again, I, I again think that uh, in some cases building well on this, uh, in other cases, uh, as I mentioned, three that are not, climate, trade, and immigration, at least uncertain. And certainly, again, the communication is, uh, could use a little bit of work. Peter, pick, pick. What, what are Trump's greatest hits? So the way I would summarize what uh, General Petraeus said was that in the last administration, the Middle East was seen through the lens of 2002. It was always 2002. And, and the president was always holding the line against invading and an unnecessary war. And the president, President Obama overlearned that lesson. You know, he bet, he was one of the few people to bet in that direction. He came up big, became president because of it, and he couldn't let go of it. And a number of my friends who served at high levels in the Obama administration said there wasn't learning, that the president on, in 2016 was very much the where he was on 2009 and 2002. And this president uh, is not lost, is not locked into a 2002 mentality about the Middle East. And I think that's- 1982. <laughs> perhaps. If he's uh, locked into anything. The, so that's one thing that's, uh, that's better. Second thing that's better, so far, uh, is relations among the cabinet, national, the national security cabinet. And Dave uh, has mentioned that. Very, very good. But they get along much better than did the, any co common trio, national security advisor, secretary of state, secretary of defense, if you want a quartet, add the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. These four get along better than any previous four of the last eight years. So that's, that's now, it's early because they don't have a staff to be fighting against each other. Once they have a staff, bureaucratic politics may return. Uh, and then my last point, and this is not better, but this is, the, this is really the question, I think, that is at the heart of what Julia said earlier. Is President Trump on a learning curve? The, the case for that is that he 
didn't do in the primary and general and transition what other candidates do, which is prepare to govern. During the primary and during the general, he focused only on the uh, winning and not on preparing to govern. And so he didn't do the, the things that every other candidate, including every other successful candidate, has done, bone up on the issues, develop a large team of vetted people ready to go in on day one. The transition was, uh, was a missed opportunity because they rebooted it a couple times. And, and so really, they're about three months behind, three to six months behind another administration on so many levels. Um, so the optimistic case. I was about to say, that's one of the, the, no, no. the, the successes. The optim- they're, no. they're only three to six months behind. No, no, the optimistic case is. <laughs> I feel is, much better, because I thought they were years behind. The, the optimistic case is that there's a learning curve, and he's, he'll, he'll get better. The pessimistic case is that there's not a learning curve, and that the president, uh, this is his governing style. And in that, in, that, in that case, it's a very different... Save your uh, pessimism. We'll okay. come back to that. I just, I just, can we just, it's been, we, he has been in our lives now for about two years. Can we please stop with the battered girlfriend syndrome of like, he's going to change. He's on a learning curve. He's going to, once he gets the nomination, sorry. Um, and I don't mean to trivialize domestic abuse. I'm sorry if I offended anyone, but you know, this, this um, constantly waiting for him to become another man at age 70-something, it's just, it's not going to happen. And this, you know, he's going to, he'll get the nomination, he'll become more presidential. Okay. He'll win, he'll become more presidential. Never mind. Okay. He'll be inaugurated, he'll certainly become more presidential because he's the president, in fact. No, it doesn't happen. And the learning curve is steep because he has, throughout his seven decades on Earth, been been profoundly incurious about the world in which he lives, in which we all live, unfortunately, with him. And um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> is that too blunt? <laughs> so I, I just think that. Um, you know, it's wonderful to have these people in the cabinet who get along, but again, because uh, he might tweet something that suddenly cuts off um, Qatar from the entire region, which is, you know, already a calm and stable region, you know, or if he, um, it, it kind of doesn't matter if they get along or if they have staffs or not, because he or Jared will do something crazy. And, um, and I think the other difference that I think is really uh, terrible and a kind of law, um, kind of under the radar simmering thing is usually is, in Washington. This, is, this was like, what's good? Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I, I just, I have to like, I'm See, just, boss, I'm I answered the I'm question. Just, yeah, no, 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 I appreciate I, I'll that. I'll get there. It's just a much I know. By the way, answer. I know where she's going. It's the orb. The orb, <laughs> <laughs> right, was extremely... Cool. It was well, the magic eight ball. It was the magic eight ball. Yeah. So um, no, I'll get to what's better because it's just a very short answer. I just wanted to push back. Uh, I just wanted to push back against what my uh, esteemed fellow panelists were saying, because I, I, you know, with all due respect, um, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel for what's good here, and. Um, the so you in prior administrations in Washington you would have the best and the brightest itching competing to serve the country and whatever administration was in power. You're seeing a massive 
exodus from Washington, people are seeing what McMaster goes through. People are seeing what Tillerson goes through. People are seeing what Rod Rosenstein goes through. And they're saying, no thanks. I don't want to be part of this vehicle that is driven by a drunk driver mowing down women and, uh, pregnant women and children. I don't want to be sitting in the back seat saying, oh, perhaps you want to take a right turn here or stop at the stop sign because he's not going to. But you know, but you'll and get I promise, through. the president will never again attack the bleeding facelift of a news reporter. Um, yeah. So, anyway, so but what's, what's better, the, good thing? the, bad the one good 30 thing, seconds, the one we, good thing was the 59 Tomahawk missiles that hit that empty uh, airfield in Syria. It was, it was a show of, no, no, it was actually a really important moment because it showed the Russians that actually were willing to do something, and it showed that the Russians actually can't do all that much in return. That a lot of their of what of their position in Syria and in the world is bluff and yet bluster. oddly enough, no Russians were injured in the attack. In the filming of the I attack. wonder, no animals were harmed. I, I wonder how that happened. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. If you like today's show, check out Combating Kleptocracy, featuring U.S. District Judge Mark Wolf, Transparency International co-founder Frank Vogel, Deborah Connor of the Justice Department, and Meryl Chertoff. Chertoff leads the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society program. Find the link to this companion episode in our show notes or by searching the Aspen Ideas to Go archive on Apple Podcasts. Now back to the discussion. Dave, what, what do you see as the problems, the, the things that worry you the most about the way they're approaching national security or a policy that worries you the most? Well, look, we talked staffing. Uh, we talked um, lack of coherence in, in communications. Again, I just keep saying come back and w watch what's actually happening on the battlefield. Look at what, I mean, we shot down a, a Syrian aircraft. Uh, we shot down three drones. Um, you know, you may or may not, not applaud that vigorously, but I think that that shows that we are going to protect those, at, those elements on the ground uh, that we have helped to develop. And frankly, we weren't doing that before. Uh, we hesitated for a very, very long time there. Then again, I mentioned climate. Uh, I hope that trade is actually going to be, to prove to be pragmatic. Uh, the NAFTA negotiations so far actually are. Uh, and there's lots that can be renegotiated in NAFTA. Bob Zelk and I did that task force on North America and had several pages on this, and they're all included in what they're addressing. So I, I think the problem here is actually distilling out the discordant uh, comments to the press, tweets, you name it, uh, and actually trying to focus on what is going on. And again, immigration is another one about which I obviously have reservations. Uh, I think we need comprehensive immigration. I think we need more H-1B visas. I think you need a legal pathway for unskilled. And you know, the whole issue with the uh, ban and so forth is, is going to prove counterproductive, probably. But uh, in any event, look, there are, there are lots of things here about which one could wring his hand. Um, there are also some things that I actually uh, am happy to see. Uh, I don't think this is a president who is going to announce a surge of forces and in the same speech announced the drawdown date, regardless of the conditions on the battlefield. Um, so let's keep that in perspective, even as you may or you know, 
may not necessarily applaud, again, all the communications. Russia policy is a problem. The president should have created an independent commission chaired by Steve Hadley and Leon Panetta and should have said they're going to look at the entire Russia involvement in the 2016 election and basically the attack, Russian attack on the U.S. democracy. And they're going to look at it. It's going to take them a year and they're going to report back and we're going to implement what they recommend. And I'm not going to answer a question on it in the in intervening year. He would have bought himself a year to govern and instead he's on a daily uh, yeah, response no, cycle. No question about that. Uh, so Russia. But U.S.-Russia policy, I'm not so sure. Uh, what actually. is U.S.-Russia policy now? I, I think that we, it's, and by the way, this is where there's something that's good, is that Congress, question, Congress is going to drive this. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the White House will go along. But the President of the United States announced, or actually it was the Russians that announced today, that the President would be meeting with Vladimir Putin on the edges of the G20 meeting, thus giving him the face-to-face -face time with the United States President following an attack on the United States for which the Russians have knowing paid precious is, little. Knowing that this is a president whose uh, decisions depend heavily on who he talked to last and who charmed him last, Xi Jinping, who was the head of a country that Trump threatened to uh, label a currency manipulator throughout the campaign, suddenly not a currency manipulator, Really well, I hope that they guy. weren't a currency manipulator. No, no, but, you know, he was, I mean. you know, but, but it was like that because he had a nice time with him over the actually wasn't. Like, hey. It actually wasn't just like that. It there wasn't. was a meeting where he got together a bunch of business advisors. Yeah. And in the meeting, he said, they're currency manipulators and we're going to beat them up, right? What do you think, Jamie Dimon? And Jamie Dimon said, no, I don't think that. And then he said, well, what do you think? And he said, no, I don't think that. And he went around the table. No. And everybody who said, no, I, I actually don't agree with your policy, Mr. President, the president turned to his staff and said, you know, what's going on here? And, and they've started backing away from it because yeah. none of the core of the people supporting them actually supported it. But it yeah. also depends on his interactions with these powerful men, these uh, leaders of these countries, or his meeting with Jens Stoltenberg, the general secretary of NATO, after which we decided NATO was no longer obsolete, like that. I mean, well, it's been fixed, too. But that it is NATO, NATO has been fixed. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, if, so I, this work is why with us Putin here, wanted that yeah. FaceTime so badly. <laughs> you know, they are actually, they actually are spending more on defense in real terms, considerably so, uh, more. But, but um, outside of what's happening on the battlefield, um, and the, the U.S.-Russia policy might be determined at this meeting because of the in, whatever interaction, however the interaction goes between Putin and Trump. You got, you got cut you. off. You got cut well, I want, to, I want to make one more thing. I want to actually talk about America first, which is in the title of our panel, just in case anyone came hoping to hear something about that. Um, the problem is not the phrase America first. It's the word he added in front of it, only America first. Mm -hmm. Every president well, I don't know. America, America first was pretty bad. If you capitalize That was it, Charles Lindbergh. If you capitalize it. was sort of pro-Nazi yeah, yeah. isolation. It was a... It's a pretty ghastly choice, right? Ca that that's, that's America first, capital A, capital F. But if you're saying, I'm going to put American interests first, then that's every president's doing that. And the, the problem is that I don't think, well, I do think that President, Paris. president Trump has a transactional, short uh, horizon view of relations and misses the idea of how allies properly supported, leverage American power and extend American power. The, the best thing the U.S. has done uh, in, I think, in the last 200 years, is, well, freeing the slaves, okay, so the last 100 years, was uh, the 
geopolitical order established after World War II, and it was premised on the US putting other people's interests, uh, not first, but on the table in our calculation. Well, embedded in your statement is, and that alliances benefit us exactly. as well as benefiting the allies. And that a little bit of free riding is a reasonable price to pay for the large strategic order stability that you get from it. And that, the president, his team understands that. If you talk to HR, if you talk Very to yep. Secretary Tillerson, they, you will get that back. But, but I don't know if the president has articulated that in public as effectively as he needs to for, for, that, to, uh, for that message to permeate through the rest of the world and, and calm the troubled waters. And I'll stop there. Well, I think... I, can I just say the one thing that really troubles me? He has the, he has, he has the nuclear codes. He can what? I just remind everyone? He has the nuclear codes. David Rothkopf is the CEO of the Rothkopf Group. David Petraeus is a partner in the investment firm KKR. He used to lead the CIA. Julia Yaffe covers U.S. politics, national security, and foreign policy for The Atlantic. And Peter Fever was the director for Defense Policy and Arms Control on the National Safety Council. Now he teaches at Duke University. Their conversation was held on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival earlier in the year, in late June. Find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also featured weekly on Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. Here's the rest of the conversation. David Rothkopf. Here's the thing. I think we've resolved all this, and it's very clear to you, right? <laughs> it's not. All right, well, maybe you have your own questions. Let's just start with this gentleman here. The question of immigration and terrorism really has been on the minds of uh, all of us, of course. And yet when you go back to 9-11, 15 of the 19 terrorists were Saudis. Every terrorist act in the Western world, from California to Florida to New York to Brussels to Paris, have come from uh, ideological Wahhabist, Salafist background. Yet, our policy has been shifted back in favor of a new regime in Saudis. So, why is it that we're not focused on the core of the terrorism issue? So, let's, let's frame the question this way. Has, there's a perceived shift back in the direction of some groups that are associated with some terrorism. I think the question was framed a little bit broadly because they're certainly been domestic terrorist acts and other kinds of terrorist acts not associated with this. But have we made a mistake in shifting our focus a, uh, with regard to the war on terror? First of all, look, we've raised these issues repeatedly. I did it innumerable times as in three different four-star positions and as director of the CIA. I think there actually has been some, some movement in it. I think there is greater sensitivity to it. Um, I think that now Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's uh, reforms will actually open up Saudi Arabia. Uh, yes, you know, a woman driving, a, he, he actually has said, a woman can drive a camel in the Quran, but she can't drive a car today. Uh, and there's a lot of other advances. They're sensitive to this. They have a religious fundamental hierarchy that is a challenge 
both to that process and indeed uh, has in some cases um, funded and fostered uh, the kind of ultra-fundamentalist uh, view of Islam that can then uh, give more easily to this kind of extremist belief. Um, having said that, I am one who believes that um, it is good to counter the malign Iranian activity uh, in the Gulf more effectively than we have been. Uh, and the way, one way that you are going to have to do that is to some degree to pick sides. And I would side with the countries of the GCC uh, and the other Arab countries uh, over, uh, certainly over Iran. And they'd be the first to acknowledge that they're flawed friends, but they are, they are generally friends. Now, we do have a problem now with this uh, quite significant uh, dispute between the, the Saudis, the Emiratis, a couple of others, Bahrainis and the Egyptians, and the Qataris. Uh, and that is, is very troubling. There is foundation for this. I personally went to the Qatari government uh, on a number of occasions, particularly as the commander of U.S. Central Command, and I said, look, you just gave us $100 million to build our forward headquarters uh, at the, this massive billions of dollar airbase complex that we already have tens of thousands of troops on. And that's awesome. Uh, and you want us to be your defense policy. And then on the other hand, you're hammering us every night in Al Jazeera, and not just hammering us, but in some cases giving voice to individuals who are uh, really inciting uh, what is essentially violence. So underwriting so, the Muslim Brotherhood and other groups that have been it's, destabilizing. It's, 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 it's that, in that case, it's more so than that. I mean, these are other issues. Uh, and then they do certainly have given harbor to Hamas, to Muslim Brothers, to uh, the Taliban, of course, we asked them to take the Taliban. That was part of the negotiations when we had some hope that we could actually negotiate something with them. And we do need to remember that. They also took the Hamas leader, actually, at the request of Israel as well as the United States, as I recall. So there needs to be some nuance here, but this is a significant dispute. Uh, there is foundation for it, and it's gonna ha we've got to get the temperature down and then and avoid the situation of putting... A, a still relatively new leader of a country so firmly backed into a corner that there's no way out for him. Two quick responses. Quick, yeah. uh, there is militant Islamist uh, terrorism that's Sunni-based, as he said, but there's also militant Islamist terrorism that's Shia-based, and that was left off the question, and, and, sure. and General Petraeus addressed that. Iran, through Hezbollah, through the Quds Force, major uh, purveyors of terrorism and instability in the region, and we have to, be, we have to address both. Second, uh, we have a strong interest in seeing the Saudi regime reform. We do not have an interest in cracking the regime and collapsing it. And if you think it's been bad that Saudi has been a source of instability in the past, crack the regime and see what happens, and it'll be a lot, lot worse. So we have to yep. work with them on a reform path, but not in a way that would crack the regime. Brief. Very quickly, um, as, as horrible as terrorism is, I think we often let ourselves get a little bit too, um, we become too captive to it because it's spectacular, it's, it's sexy. And what's uh, weird to me about this administration is you know, the obsession with ISIS as if it's an existential threat to the US, which it's not while cozying up to Russia, which actually could be an existential threat. Well, we could so. take it a step further.
Do any of the experts on this stage think that there is any terrorist group that could impose the kind of suffering or actually death tolls on the United States that the GOP health care bill could? I do foreign policy. I'm a foreign policy guy. I well, you know, I, th I think that's a response of a lot of foreign policy guys, but national security, as George Kennan would have pointed out, begins with the example you set at home. And the last two or three paragraphs of the long telegram talk about that. And the reality is you can harm your national security by weakening the weakest at home, by killing people at home with bad policies, and so forth. And if you say, I'm going to go out and fight a couple of thousand potential threats out in the world, and, and, and I'm going to turn my back on a group of people at home and weaken yourself at home, that's a national security issue. I see some hands. So to follow up on the national security risk, it's a little concerning to me that we're glossing over climate change and Trump's erratic behavior as per his tweets, because those seem to me to be huge, huge national security risks. Um, Julia, start with you. Oh, this, that's uh, what I was saying, is that the, the erratic nature of this president um, and his lack of a policy as opposed to a unified message. There is no unified message, but there's also no unified policy because of how erratic he is. This is all very concerning and destabilizing all over the world. So uh, climate change is a big issue, but there is a, de a reasonable debate that, about what's the best way to address it. And I, I think net-net, uh, it may have been a mistake to pull out of Paris, given all of the other uh, balls he has up in the air. But the critique of the Paris Agreement, um, it has merit to it. And, needs, and, and so I, d I wouldn't dismiss that as, as mere um, uh, impulsiveness on the, on the part of the administration. Well, on the other hand, when the President of the United States says climate change isn't real and says that it's a hoax made up by the Chinese and seems to not well, be interested that, in that's science. That's what he said during the campaign. He has not said that since, the, the, um, to my knowledge. He so, said he's sorry, right? So, uh, but I, 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 on, the, on the behavior, uh, we don't know this administration has not been tested with a a crisis where the events, the crisis that they didn't create. I mean, there have been some uh, message crises, but they haven't, not the kind like an EP3 where the thing could, uh, which the Bush administration had the first year, or the um, Kashmir problem in the first year, and of course President Obama had presided over many. Uh, that's when you know whether the medal of the president and, and his capacity or her capacity to respond wisely in the moment and we haven't seen one of those Well, but yet. that's the question. Let me ask right. you guys that directly. Julia's addressed it directly. I talk to lots of world leaders, travel around. I can't tell you, in, in, in all of my life doing this, it never once came up, the question whether or not the President of the United States was fit to serve, or whether or not the President of the United States was actually um, mentally ill. And in the course of the past six months, it's come up every couple of days from senior leaders around the world. Do you think the President of the United States is fit to serve as President? General Petraeus. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
as I used to say in uniform, that sounds like a policy question. <laughs> um, and I look, I think it's immaterial. Again, what I'm focusing on is the team. Uh, no, I. No, I. No, give him a chance to explain. Let me explain. You know, pronouncing yes or no, I don't think that changes a darn thing. Uh, what I'm pointing out is that around him, uh, he has a very good team. Uh, they've been slightly tested a few times. I think, again, the use of chemical weapons was one of those. Uh, and I think they did better than was done the last time, when there was an explicit red line already in existence stated on multiple occasions. Um, again, I think a lot of the uh, policies that have been pursued so far, look, there's all kinds of discordant stuff. B.B. Netanyahu sitting there and the president says one state, two state, eh, whatever they want. <laughs> we're, back, we're back to the two state, two, two state solution. Uh, again, I talked about China. You know, one, we're back to the, to the one China. And we actually have strategic dialogue. By the way, I don't think it is at all bad that a president of the United States talks to uh, another leader, even if that leader has many uh, conflicting objectives at all. I believe with Henry Kissinger that you should have strategic dialogue uh, with your adversaries. And I believe it's very Henry, good. Henry, by the day, so by the way, today so, was in Moscow meeting with Putin, and they just released pictures of that today. So, here's so how let, me, let me finish this if I could, though. Um, I identified climate. I said that right out of the barrel. Um, now, let's, though, consider the withdrawal. I think it is hugely significant symbolically. Uh, and I regret that um, as an American. I do not think it actually substantively will change whether or not the United States actually meets its goals or not. Let's remember we made the goals ourselves, and that could be a critique of the, from a different perspective than I think you meant, uh, as did the other countries. Um, and, but it, again, I think there was a lot of very, very important symbolism in that, and just the sheer recognition that this poses a very significant problem to the world, I think, was, was very, very important. Uh, this is where checks and balances come in as well. And I think a, a lot of people have been looking at the importance of states, which have been the ones that have sued the president, of municipalities, of uh, business firms, and so forth. And I think, again, we will meet our climate goals at the end of the day. Uh, I certainly wish that we were continuing to lead it uh, as we were. By the way, we don't come out of it till 2020 anyway, and who knows what happens before then. So here's how I, as I signed, as I'm a Republican, I signed all of the letters that were, were circulating by Republican foreign policy um, specialists critiquing Trump. So I signed the one in March, I circulated another one in March, I wrote volumes of uh, critique of Trump on foreign policy and elsewhere, and I signed the, the one in August. And that's the letter I think that most angered the president was the August letter. Uh, so I was a strong uh, critic and I voted for Ben Sass. So I did not vote for the president. But that doesn't matter because he became my president because the electorate chose him. And, and you can argue for the yeah, majority chose Hillary point. Clinton, but yeah. the electorate under the, the laws <clears throat> of this land chose him to be my president. So now he's flying the plane. And before that I was critiquing him as pilot but now I'm on the plane with him as the pilot. And my friends, I have many Republican friends who are still happy to shoot spitballs at him from the coach seats. And I'm thinking, 
that may feel good to, to do that, but that's not necessarily helping him fly the plane. And so I think that there's, it, there's a moral duty on people uh, like uh, General Petraeus, myself, anyone else who would have friends in there who have some uh, influence, we have to help them to help them succeed. And that's, that's my view of it. We've got two minutes here. Okay. Unless we fall into the tradition of having men filibuster panels. I I'd, like a, Julia, I'd like Julia to have an opportunity so, to, to talk and pose a question. To filibuster. I have a question. <laughs> so you, you've kind of um, disqualified yourself with the, with the letters, right? But General Petraeus, you were in the running for a while to uh, serve as Secretary of State. Uh, knowing what you know now about this, this administration and how it works, if the spot should ever open up, is it something you would ever want to do? No, I, look, I would have, and I never got quite to that stage. We were approaching it. I mean, I, one time it was, you know, it's going to happen tomorrow. And I said, well, we didn't need a last conversation because there's some conditions that I would want to have. And those conditions would be very considerable. By the way, they would include cl uh, clearance of messaging. Um, you, can't, you cannot keep going on like this. Uh, and so... You know, I was actually approached to be considered as a national security advisor. I first said, no way. Uh, we'd been down the road. Things had been developing. I had uh, some concerns. Uh, and then Ryan's previous came back again, again. And um, so I had conditions. Um, and, you know, I think that's certainly one reason why I'm not the national security advisor. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, at the end of the day, I've been in the Oval Office where everybody else is filing out and avoiding eye contact with you, because they know the president's about to sit down with you and ask you that question, which is, I am asking you as your president and commander in chief uh, to, you know, in that case, to deploy to Afghanistan, take command of the International Security Assistance Force. Um, and my response was the only answer to that can be yes. Now, I think in a case like this, you'd have very uh, detailed conversations uh, about conditions and about processes and about authorities uh, for hiring and firing and for, again, com uh, communications on foreign policy topics, et cetera, et cetera. But I think at a certain point, again, I, I do think, you know, we have to do what we can to try to help this president, even if uh, people are critical of him. I wish. that we had time for lots more questions, and perhaps you can ask some questions after we're done. But I have to say one thing. You know, I've spent my whole life working in the foreign policy world, and one of the things that has always struck me about it is that most of the people, regardless of policy in the foreign policy and national security communities, have a common goal, which is to advance U.S. national interests as they see it best done. And the discussion that usually takes place is civil, and substantive and of a high level of quality and quite different from the political discussion that takes place. Um, and I think it's really important to reawaken that spirit. And I give a lot of credit to the Aspen Institute and to the people on this panel because I think that's exactly what they did. An informed, thoughtful discussion offering multiple perspectives on critical issues. Please join me in thanking them for today. David Petraeus led the CIA and served nearly four decades in the U.S. military. Journalist Julia Yaffe wrote for Politico before joining The Atlantic. 
David Rothkopf is the author of a number of acclaimed books, and Peter Fever is the director of the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy. Their conversation was held earlier this summer in June. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Explore thousands of videos from the festival on our website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen, Eliza Costas, and me, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.